Hi, this is Örvar Smarason from Moom. I've been talking to Rob Kent on Faultline Social uh, for the podcast. And we've been discussing so many different things. We started going through just the history of Moom and the, you know, the thinking behind or the lack of thinking behind everything we've done. And um, yeah, we went from there all over the place, discussed some of the you know, the early albums and how the band developed and how it's not really a band. It's something, it's like this uh, collective of people or a clan or, or just, yeah, a group of friends who do different things and, you know, don't have two, you know, rigid lines around it. And yeah, we just discussed a lot of things. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Uh, I'm based in Birmingham, England today, uh, okay. and, and always because on the on the email we were saying like Iceland time, but we're actually the same time. <clears throat> well, that's funny because I I was just thinking about Birmingham today. Oh, what were you thinking about? Uh, what which yeah. bit about Birmingham? Okay, so because we haven't had any gigs for a while, I've just been putting some old posters, like old tour posters, up on uh, Instagram on the yeah. Instagram. So somebody mentioned, somebody saw an old poster from 2002 and mentioned that they had been at our gig in Birmingham. What and was I the think, venue? Oh, wow, what was it again? Do you know uh, what? Do you know what, mate? I think I actually saw that poster. Was it at the Medicine Bar? Yeah, yeah, that's it, Medicine Bar. Do you, do you know what's really funny? Um, so the man who owned the medicine bar it closed down and he opened a bakery and he's now my boss i swear oh really nice yeah, funnily That's enough good. yeah he literally just opened another thing called the medicine bakery which is actually like such a strange coincidence that we're talking about this right now and you played there and everything yeah well that's a good transition going from a bar to a bakery yeah especially as you yeah, get a bit older <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well the thing is that uh, yeah, I started thinking about when we played in Birmingham and think about the venue and I started Googling it. And it's really hard to Google Moom because for some reason Google wants it to be mum. So I get a lot of posts about mums. And so sometimes I <laughs> need to use other words. And uh, there's a supermarket chain that has also kind of ruined the Iceland thing. So if I Google mum and Iceland at the same time, I get you know, the, not the results I'm looking for. And today I was Googling because I wanted to see if, if that was the only time we played in Birmingham. So I Googled mum or moom, Birmingham, Iceland. And the first thing that came out was, <laughs> now it was, uh, wait, I actually, I, I just have to find this. Sorry, this, this was too good. There was a headline in the Birmingham Post or something. Oh, in the Birmingham Mail. In the Birmingham yeah, Mail. Wait yeah. a second. This is too funny for. So the headline said. Wait, looking for this. <laughs> I'm excited to hear this. Yeah. It said, yeah, horrified moom discovers human poo on shelf in Iceland while grabbing chicken nuggets. <laughs> 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 so I'm trying to Google when we last played in Birmingham. This was the result. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Birmingham, man. That sounds yeah. like something that would happen around there. <laughs> yeah, so I've been laughing about that all day. So it's, yeah, funny coincidence. Also Very... about the bakery and the medicine bar and everything. Wow, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that's the only time we've played in Birmingham. 
I think it is, you know, sadly. Yeah, how come you never came back? Was it just a promoter situation? Or Yeah, well, the thing is, of course, like most musicians, we don't really decide where we play. Yeah. You know, it's the promoters and it goes through the, you know, the booking agents and everything. Do you know this scene in Wayne's World too? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, they want to put on a festival and he has a dream about Jim Morrison and Jim Morrison tells him, book them and they will come. And that's usually my answer to the question when somebody says, why don't you come play here? Why don't you come play there? My, my answer is book us and we will come. Yeah, it's true. Quite yeah, because we don't really decide where we go. You know, it has, you know, it has to, you know, of course, fit to something we're doing if, if we're touring or doing live shows. Yeah. But basically, yeah. we get the offers and we answer them. It doesn't go the other way around. Yeah, have you seen it change a lot then compared to obviously doing the 2002 tour to when you were touring probably about a year and a half ago now? How, how, how has the process and like touring changed for, you know, just in general and for Mum as a band? Yeah. The thing is that at that time, you know, we were around 20 years old and, you know, life in general was just so much different. Yeah. I didn't really pay attention a lot to the, you know, the whole process of behind things, the booking, you know, the planning of the tours. I was just, you know, hanging out in a van, having fun. Obviously, as you get older, you need to, you know, wrap your head around the whole process and how it works. So basically, that's the thing that changed. I just got older and had to start, you know, taking responsibility for the things. But also, yeah, I think we did around that time, 2002, I think we did like eight months of touring after the album came out. Yeah. And we'd play almost every single night. We didn't really have any days off. We, you know, at that time, we were always in a van. We have a little bit more luxury now when we play you know of the sleeper bus so but yeah when you're this young you don't really care no no we couldn't do that now but we're happy we did that at the time because we played so many shows with so many people and that's something you you know you can't put up you know price tag on yeah how was because it's funny because like the whole van situation is like very like punk aesthetic for me mm-hmm. to be honest and um but i always think mum has that although the music isn't it has that element in the band of like the independent thinking and just going for it and never looking back was that like the attitude that really kept you going within the early younger days of the band yeah definitely we mm. we were just gonna do this music and play it to as many people as we could no matter what would happen so guess like in the this was kind of almost built into the icelandic music scene at the time you just do anything you wanted to do I think it comes, I think it probably originates from the Sugar Cubes because they were very like open, energetic kind of, you know, entity. They just did whatever the hell they wanted to do. I think that, I mean, if if there's any influences on how we ever did things, it must be the Sugar Cubes. Yeah. Because how was you know, the scene growing up in Iceland for you as at attending shows? Um, because to me, Iceland's a very strange country because there's like one city. Is it a very tight-knit community? And does, did you almost feel isolated from the rest of Europe? And was it... Um, and how, Yeah, how was the scene growing up there? Was there a, a lot of creative ideals or did you think there was some ceilings going on just because it wasn't as connected as, say, somewhere like, you know, even Birmingham or Hamburg, wherever mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, I would say, yeah. 
it felt a bit isolated. Uh, when I was like around 12, 13, 14, the bands that would come would only be like, it would be mostly heavy metal bands and they would be, you know, the big ones that would, the only foreign bands that would come in were the ones that came and played in some, you know, like a sports arena or something. I remember when I was 12, me and my friend, we like, uh, we took a ferry to go see Black Sabbath play somewhere. Oh, amazing. Yeah, local boys. Yeah, they're, they're from here. Yeah, from Birmingham. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I, I, it was so good, but I can't understand now how my... I have a 12-year-old daughter now. I would never let her take a ferry to go see Black Sabbath. Somewhere <laughs> yeah. It's so insane when I think about it now. Wow. Yeah. So you took a ferry. Why? Um, is Iceland yeah. not... like Is the landmass, uh, like, you know, geographically and naturally separated like that? And mm-hmm. is that like a common method of maybe getting from place to place? There's a town called Akranes, um, uh, which used to be, you, it would take you like two hours to drive there because you have to go, because that's before they like dug a tunnel. And so there'd be a ferry that would go there, you know. Oh, wow. That's basically why we had to take the ferry. That's, they were having like some festival in that town. Yeah, man. Very interesting. Yeah, so you great look- I remember that. Yeah, so where did it go from there? So were you a fan of like heavier stuff? And was it ninety one? I got to see. I was driving with my parents through the UK, mm. actually, and I saw a billboard, and uh, Guns N' Roses were playing in Newcastle. Cool. Yeah, and we were just driving. I think we were just driving past Newcastle, but yeah, they were playing the day after, and I begged my parents if we could stay in Newcastle for a couple for a couple of days so I could go see. And they let me go alone. I was thirteen, and probably. Yeah, and they let me go along to this huge Guns N' Roses gig. Uh, they had Soundgarden opening up and Faith No More. Oh, amazing. And it's one of the biggest uh, music experiences I ever had. But then, yeah, when, when, I, uh, when we go to, like, because we have a slightly different school system, I think. At 16, we go to, like, some, something that's, you know, between high school and college. And okay. When I went to that school, there was a like a music scene there, and so the like the punk bands and the new wave bands and or just there's so many interesting bands that would come through. Foreign bands that would play at that school, so we would have like concerts, you know, every other month with a band from outside of Iceland, and that was really that had a huge influence on me. I remember seeing the Dog-Faced Hermans. I remember them. I think they were a UK band, God is my co-pilot, all these yeah. kinds of bands. And yeah, that had a big impact on me. Yeah, and then we started a band in that school. When Gunny was with me and we played more like, uh, you know, some sort of indie kind of music. We were a lot, we were into Slint very much. Yeah. Into oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What what a record, yeah, Spiderland, amazing. Yeah, we loved them. Oh, and it was so good because we got to meet them then. Uh, really? You know, wow. Probably, yeah, yeah, many, many years later, because when they were doing the ATP thing, you remember the ATP festivals? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they curated one, and uh, so Slint asked us to do like the, so we got the main slot on the Sunday at the ATP, even though we were like nowhere close to being the biggest band there. Yeah. So they played the main slot on the Saturday, I think, and let us have the main slot on the Sunday. And it was amazing. No, yeah. why you were like you were like headlining the Sunday? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. huge. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, man. So, 
how did you essentially like you know get into music and did you have a, a very musical upbringing or was this a passion and interest that you kind of developed on your own and in your spare time growing up when did it really become something that you wanted to you know that that you that you knew you took seriously regardless of your the environment you were being raised in or was it you know were your parents very much into it and your friends how was it growing up and music being very prominent yeah so yeah my parents would listen to music but you know they weren't they didn't play or mm. and they never they never pushed me into studying music i think the first music i ever made was on a like a home computer you know i was doing like basic programming and uh, i was trying to make a video game and i needed music for that video game yeah so uh, that's the first music i made and i started doing like fast tracker it's also you know, it's a it's a very simple program that you can make. You know, use samples on a on a home computer. You know, these old home computers. Mm. And yeah, and also yeah. And then I when I got into rock music, I bought a guitar, obviously. And you know, I took some lessons, but mostly taught myself how to play. So I never I never studied anything. So, and the other thing is, I've never really I've never really decided to become a musician and i still i still don't think <laughs> i still don't think that's the thing i ultimately want to do it's just something that happened and is still happening yeah because when mom kind of came together how was it like forming that band was it a band band to begin with or was it like kind of like a project between a few of you mm -hmm. and yeah how how was it bringing it together and getting the creative process starting from like the ground up yeah the th yeah we because we me and Kune, as i said we were in another band and but we were much more passionate about just constantly making music and so when you're in a indie band or a, you know rock band you have to practice you have to get everyone together in the same room and you know most of the people just wanted to part party so we started talking and we um found out that we'd both been making like electronic music on our own so we just moon just started really as a you know just a thing for us to meet and you know play electronic music together Mm. It wasn't really thought of as a band to begin with. We did some recordings and it sounded really good. And so, yeah, we did a split 10 inch with some friends of ours. And then maybe a year or two years later, we were doing theater music for, um, for like a school play. And then we met the, uh, Christian and Gida, the twin twins. They were playing in that and, and a lot of other friends. And we kind of just came from a group of friends who were all very creative musicians. And so Momo was always more of like a clan than ever a band. Yeah, I agree with that statement. Yeah, for group sure. Of people, and it still is, you know, we're not, anytime we tour, it's never the same, you know, it's never the same group. It's just different. It depends on who's doing what at the, you know, at each time so it makes everything so much more it's, it's it's more rewarding and it's you know it's easier i think yeah just to kind of have the kind of open door policy in a way yeah and it's been the same thing with like the projects we do we've never you know doing if we're doing theater music or film music or 
whatever weird project we're doing at the time, it always fits. It doesn't like, we don't need to bend it towards our, you know, band mentality because we don't have one. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unusual, unusual comments, actually. They're like the band mentality isn't there. Do you think that, um, yeah, why do you think the mentality never got there? Because surely it could it could have got to the stage where you guys were like, yo, okay, we're doing quite well. Some people seem to really be enjoying this. Shall we, you know, get some more concrete involved? Or why why did the kind of free floating attitude kind of take over? Yeah, I guess uh, it has a lot to do with yeah th- yeah. I think there's a, a lot of different elements. I think it has to do with how we began doing it we didn't do this to start a band in the beginning i guess yeah. just to make music um also yeah the the first projects that, that we were making were like theater music we did music for poetry stuff and all, so from the beginning we were really open about what we were doing and yeah also just belonging to this group of people because all these people i think all of us were probably 10, 15, 20 people, depending on how you count it. We've all been in different bands with different people. And there are actually a lot of these bands around our group of friends who change, change personnel all the time. And I, I'm not saying there weren't moments where we felt like, is this a band or is this not a band? But then, you know, things just kept moving on and we never, it never developed in that way. So. Mm. And yeah. we found out that people don't people don't want to be um, when we're playing with people they don't you know people don't really want to have things too defined or like put in the box of who's you know whose role is what in the band and things like that. It's much it's much more open and creative to do it the other way. I'd like to talk to you about the debut record. Yesterday was dramatic. Today is okay, which I think is actually a very relevant title in the pandemic. Um, okay. So the original, this was re, uh, yeah, originally released in 99 and then again in 2005 and then remastered in 2019, 2020. There's been many, many additions to this album over, Mm -hmm. over history, like a lot of kind of like redos and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. why do, why, why do you think this record has held up and allowed for like a re-release on a bigger label, a remaster for new fans and to give the music, um, you know, more of a Hall of Fame kind of status within the band's back catalogue. Why do you think it was the debut record that achieved this status? Mm, I, I think I, I still think it might be, you know, it's probably our best album and it's the weirdest album that we did, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's just some energy there. In it, and like, we also because we weren't focusing on we didn't have an idea what we wanted to do. It just, we just let it happen like that. As soon as you make a second album, you have to, you know, you have to some, even though you try not to, uh, there's always going to be something, you know, there's, there's going to be something that you're working towards. And at that point, it was just completely free music. It's good. It's, and it's also the, it's, it's the, it's our album. It only has one song that's not instrumental on it. Yeah. So the later albums all had much more singing on it. Yeah, they did a lot more actually because I got yeah. into Mum's later stuff. Well, mm-hmm. when I started listening and then went back and then like worked my way backwards and then like the vocals were just disappearing slightly record by record. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, yeah, it's um, it's it's a uh, and it sounds the sound on it. It's it's a really good headphone record. It's one of the mm. you know probably the best headphone record that we've done. And uh, and then the re-releases they also happened because we uh, we the label that you know that we put it on first was a, a local label here, and we got into you know some legal rankings with them and we ended up winning the the rights for it back and so 2005 we released it with more music which was kind of our you know spiritual home at that time so that felt very natural mm. and then on the 20 year anniversary we wanted to do something you know special for it something big you know and remaster it because we always felt it could it hadn't reached its full potential sound wise you speak about it being a weird record uh i do agree i think it's very good though um but was it do you think that's why it kind of captured people the most because it was such a bold statement at, at the time in a year like 99 i think so yeah i think yeah. i still think there's no uh, there's no we haven't made an album that sounds like it i don't think anybody's made an album in that because it doesn't even have a style. It's yeah, it's very unique. It's a unique album. It's and it's yeah, it it has a it's a long. It, I mean, it's over sixty minutes. I think it's sixty five minutes or something. It has yeah, very it's long, a really long record. Very progressive span. album. Yeah, 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 big span there. We had no. We weren't scared to put on like ten minute tracks at that point or anything. So just let everything flow there. Just experimenting. Yeah, it's so good. I still love it today. Yeah, it's a fantastic record, man. So 2002 comes around and finally We Are No One is released, the follow-up. Were you, was this, was this a nerve-wracking, you know, in a way kind of experience because people obviously expected something now of you guys? Do you know that whole second album syndrome? Did you feel it? No, we definitely didn't feel it then. Yeah. We, um, it's, I think, possibly after Finally We Are No One we felt it, but at that point, no, there was, um, the, yeah, there was nothing on our back in that way. We had kind of, you know, went on a slightly different direction. And I also think that's a pretty, uh, carefree album as well though. You know? Yeah. It isn't until we make summer make good. We felt maybe we were having a little bit too much success and we needed to, pull the brakes on it it's yeah i had heard somewhere that uh that uh, robert smith said the cure would always make one happy album and then one sad album and we kind of yeah we decided straight after finally we're known that we were going to do a black album like a sad like a dark album and that's what we did <laughs> yeah so interesting that that was intentional. Was that to stop? Because you said like too much success. That's like an unusual thing to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is me. This is me looking back, though. I don't know if it wasn't. It wasn't this clear at the time. Hmm. But we definitely wanted to make. I think what we wanted to do is like a really ambitious album to show how, you know, that we had, you know, more scope or something i don't know we uh, that we could go deeper yeah yeah, yeah. i think i was really happy with what we did with 
uh, Summer Made Good, but it was a grueling process, and I don't think we would ever do an album like that again. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm so happy with how it turned out in the end. Yeah. So how was it? Um, I want to go back to the debut just for a minute. How was it? You know, I'd use the term jamming that, but I guess you didn't really jam it. Like, how was the writing and recording process for that? Um, and yeah, at the time, how was how was that whole experience? And how do you and and how do you look back upon that? Yeah, I think uh, uh, like technically, the thing is at that point in electronic music. Mm. Uh, we nobody was in the laptop yet. It was all, it was all MIDI. You would have to sequence your instruments, everything, mm-hmm. and have it running at the same time, mm-hmm. like MIDI sync. So the writing process for electronic music at that time was very different from what it is today. Yeah, where it's much more done, you know, in the laptop where you combine the audio and the synths and the MIDI and everything. But we were doing it. So think, I think that shaped how we did it in the end. But because when we recorded it, it was our first uh, brush with Pro Tools where we could get audio in. I mean, when we were doing the demos for um, yesterday, mm-hmm. we were recording them to tape from wow. electronic tape. So we, uh, we got into this really nice studio where they had a new Pro Tools system. We had never tried anything like Pro Tools. And so... Yesterday is kind of a mixture of these two elements. First, us learning how to do all these things electronically with MIDI and all these synths, and then taking that into that Pro Tools level with all the audio. And the, that's where we added all, you know, the accordions and all this, um, you know, accordions, melodic, and all the acoustic instruments. And it was, it was at that point, it was like, yeah, there was such a big horizon. We could do whatever we would dream of. Mm. It was an amazing feeling. Yeah. Was it, was it a true feeling of like release in a way of making that record because the, the canvas was yours to, you know, fill as much as you wanted. Exactly. Yeah. And we, yeah, and when, when you're learning while you're doing things, you know, that makes, makes for a special feeling. Yeah. How was it releasing it and touring it then? Because obviously when you put that out, it's a, a very bold statement, a very almost uh, a very fresh take on things. And mm-hmm. how would you, how was it perceived originally? Were you nervous about putting it out? And when it came to touring, how did that go kind of getting out of Iceland and everything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, at that point we weren't really, because we, uh, we weren't really a part of any scene. Mm-hmm. So it, we, we didn't actually we never really toured that album yeah we did a few shows we tried our best we did anything we could do to book shows we came to the you know also because you know you didn't have emails or these websites and things we just we got the name of some guy in i think in was it in, in oxford we got him to get us a name from some guy in cambridge we did a tour where we played only I think we played Oxford twice and Cambridge once. We played the Cambridge City Football Club and there was nobody there who had ever heard our album. It was just, you know, <laughs> men drinking at the, like the pub. <laughs> at the pub. It was amazing. And they were, like, they were hacking us to begin with. It was, that was actually a great show. They were hacking us. And they're like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then, like, after a while, they started getting into it. And it was a lovely, you know, in the end, it was a lovely gig. It was so, it's so rewarding to, 
you know. Over. So we would just do these trips where we would go somewhere and play and we didn't, you know. Yeah, and then, you know, slowly you start meeting people and, you know, you could do, yeah, get more tours going. So that's the first things we did, um, I guess. And then somehow we met Mogwai mm-hmm. and Mogwai got us, we did a short tour with them where they would be on like this amazing bus and we would be behind them on <laughs> like this broken down van. <laughs> yeah. They let us do a few shows with them. That really helped us because we met so many people through that. Okay, and then yeah. it just started building up. We really had to, yeah, on, on those UK tours we did first, uh, we didn't even have places. That we would, we um, slept on the street one night and slept in a park and we had no plan. We just knew that we wanted to go somewhere, play music and see what happened. So we just did anything. We had huge cases with all our synths with us because we didn't really know. Yeah, like you know, expensive equipment. Yeah, and we had no van, just yeah. taking a train and we'd carry these things on and it was just so... <laughs> and that, yeah, so we learned so much from that. It isn't until around or after um, we signed with Fat Cat, who were London-based at that point that we, you know, we got some professional help to, you know, yeah to do the actual touring yeah man that's so cool those like diy just like winging it stories that you have about coming to england and how was it in iceland then when the record came out were you playing like local shows in Reykjavik how was it uh you know getting your name out like in your home country as as well as taking yeah and you took like a massive risk coming to england with no one supporting it or anything Mm. yeah i mean the moon shows we did here were mostly on it would be maybe, you know, bands or like nights where there'd be indie bands playing or some shows with other electronic musicians, but we never really maybe fit perfectly in anywhere. But yeah. then we started, ta- started doing a lot of shows with um, like a group called Kitchen Motors, which was like an improvised thing. So the ethos for Kitchen Motors would be always pairing people up to do new stuff. So they take musicians and pair them with other people. Yeah. Um, we, yeah. And we, we were part of that group for a few years and that also, that was kind of the scene that we fit into and we did trips with them. We went to Finland and Russia and both 98 and 99, we would play with local musicians. Uh, so we actually, we met, uh, we have a Finnish drummer. He's the only one who's really played a lot with us, who's not Icelandic. Mm-hmm. So we met him in one of these gigs in 98 or 99. Um, so the Kitchen Motors group just, they were, they paired us up, you know, for a gig in some bar. It's called a sauna bar. It had a sauna in the bar. So we just met him there, like, hi, how are you doing? And then just one, two, three, four, and we played. And something clicked, and he's still so he's still playing with us. Amazing! That's so cool, man. Yeah, meeting people—that was, I mean, that's probably the key. Yeah, it is. Everything when I think about it. Absolutely, being open to all these people that you meet, and I think that also that helps you when you don't have like a rigid band structure. You don't. There's no. you, You. It's okay to open up. You know to playing with different people. And I think that really, if we would have been, you know, our set 
a set piece band, it would maybe it would have been different. Yeah, it'd have been interesting to see how it played out like that with like a solid, with like a, yeah, like you say, like a full sh- lineup of people that like never really rotated. Mm-hmm. What were the logistical and realistic challenges of breaking out of Iceland then? And, you know, breaking into, you know, fan bases around the world now. You guys have been everywhere. And why do you think the band was successful in doing that? And was it a long process or did you notice results quite quick, especially leading up to the second album? Yeah, I think it, logistically at that time, it was really hard. We, I mean, to begin with, we would send out cassettes, we're just trying to get our music out like that. Uh-huh. And we quickly figured out that we couldn't really do this from Iceland. And so when we signed with, around the time when we signed with Fat Cat, we uh, thought about moving to London, but we didn't really like London. It was too, yeah, it was too big and yeah it's okay man i don't don't like london either you can say whatever you want (laughs) yeah okay so yeah we decided no no we can't do london that's not right for us Uh, and then we kind of accidentally ended up in berlin okay cool uh and we found out that's i think that's autumn 99 or 2000 somewhere around somewhere around there And, and we found out that you know just in the first few days that the berlin scene was fitted us very well it was at that point everything was so raw in berlin it was really diy and we fit in there perfectly everything was cheap we could we could get really cheap apartments and the rest of europe was close so we most of us moved to berlin at that point and i stayed there for four or five years and and some of the people well most of the probably half the people who play with moma are still in moma in berlin so it's, oh, wow. yeah, we're all, we're all, we've always been like a Reykjavik Berlin band. So, yeah, okay, cool. So, that's that's so weird, man. In a, in like a really nice way that the you know the majority of the lineup at the time just moved to Berlin. That's quite that's quite a commitment to move country for musical purposes. Yeah, definitely not unheard of with Icelandic bands because yeah, actually true. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, both Berlin, London, or wherever, wherever you know. But because it is really, also if you if you're going to be touring and playing shows, it's expensive to live here. You know, it's yeah, really hard. Mm. Just the flights that we need to buy to get you know to get to shows or tours. So you know, there's a lot that makes sense about being somewhere else. Yeah, are you you live in Iceland today, correct? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. yeah. When 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 did you when and why did you move back then? Why did you? Because obviously, sounds like Berlin was working out really well for many reasons. Uh, what took you back to your hometown, to your home city? Well, it's, it's kind of I don't really know still, but uh, I after we toured Summer Make Good, uh, that was also a really grueling tour. Um, me and Christine we broke up and I moved to Prague yeah to, I went and I studied script writing there for a year at the film school there so I lived a year yeah. I lived in Prague for a year uh, you know just living alone in Prague and it just kind of changed my perspective a bit and I wanted to move I want. I know I wanted to go back to Iceland for a while just to figure out what I wanted to do with <laughs> my life 
something yeah something i still haven't really figured out because i don't think you ever do no but yeah i kind of kind of it kind of just happened like that and i was playing with so many i was playing in like 10 different bands at that point mm-hmm. so i i would fly from prague like every other week or something to go play shows and in the end, in the end i just figured out it'd be easier for me just to go back to always yeah yeah and yeah, then, yeah I just got I got stuck here you know got married had kids and you know life you know yeah but Gunny is still in well he moved back to Iceland but then he moved back to Berlin and he's still there so definitely. so like when you because when you moved back to Iceland that's surely when the band actually got a more international touring schedule and you were going to America you know Asia as well um, yeah what you know, did that come at the wrong time almost? And how was it breaking into like an, an international market and doing obviously like, you know, East Coast America, like really well and or taking off in Asia as well, man, like Hong Kong, China, Japan. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We've just always felt that, uh, we've always from the beginning felt that we just need to take this music wherever somebody wants to listen to it rather than being like uh, specifically Icelandic band or, you know you know we're, we're a band for the people who you know mm-hmm. are going to put the music on I want to come to the shows so we never really thought of it in that way and I mean it does make when we go on tours and it's been that for a long time people are always flying in from a lot of different places it makes you know uh, practice and rehearsing really difficult yeah. Sometimes, if if we're doing Europe, we'll all meet up in Berlin usually, rehearse there. If we're playing in the US, we we try to get over there a few days earlier, you know, find somewhere to practice there, and we've done that, you know, in Japan and everywhere because we need to get. Also, because we never, we don't usually don't have a very uh, steady set list. We need to decide what we're going to do on each tour, which which thing we're doing. So it is sometimes a bit of a headache to get everyone together in the same place. Yeah, I can imagine for sure. So how is it then too, as, as the discography continued, uh, we mentioned like vocals became a lot more prominent in the songs compared to the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, why did you choose to do this? Was it the people you were work, like, who were coming in at the time? And why did you think vocals would enhance the music? Was it something just those songs called for as the records went on? And did your poetry tra- tie into that? Were lyrics something that you wanted to put into the music as an additional outlet? Yeah, I think so. Probably. Because, um, yeah, we had one song, we had one song that wasn't instrumental on the first album. Yeah. And we, saw, we you know, obviously saw straight away that you know, people really got into that one song. So on the second album, we had, I think, four songs singing on it. But that kind of, yeah, it just kind of happened naturally. Um, and Kristin and Gila were singing, they sang everything on. Uh, finally, Kristin, all the vocals on Summer Make Good. But at that point, I was singing live. So I was doing singing, I was singing at the live shows. So for the fourth album kind of just felt natural for me to do the vocals on that album yeah and at that point um silla comes in hilter comes in and they're obviously you know amazing singers so and olaf arnolds yeah all three of them amazing singers so it just 
made sense to use their voices as much as we could. That's probably the, the album that has the most vocals on it. Yeah. Vocal, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that's. I think that's a good ob- observation. I think it might have just been because that's the album with all the great singers. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, Poison Ivy. Yeah, that's um, that was the first record I heard by the band. Um, uh-huh. Very and, uh, different from what we were doing originally. So hugely different. And then, because like, from a fan's perspective, I heard that, and then like I don't know. I assume that was what the rest of it sounded like similar to anyway and then uh yeah. yeah it was it was it was almost like a different band when you go back to the beginning and especially a, a bookmark like poison ivy because the vote there's vocals are very prominent on that record mm-hmm. yeah it just felt good to do that it just feel, felt natural yeah it's when you when you're surrounded with people who are so heavy amazing voices mm-hmm. like the girls do it just you know you have to use them we yeah. just sing constantly, you know. When you're hanging out with your friends, you know, you just sing constantly. So it was a natural, really natural progression to do, you know, go more into that, that part of it. Yeah, was it was it hard to trust yourself as new ideas came to the table and has, like, the editing process and self-trust improved within you as a musician in the past 20 years and have, have you noticed that change record to record? Yeah, I think so. I think it also has to do with age. I think, I mean, when you're doing the first record, you just, there's no issue with trusting what you're doing. You just believe that this is the, you know, best thing in the world. And then, you know, doubt comes later, you know, I think there's no, I, you know, Apart from maybe the first album, there's always a part where you start doubting what you're doing or how you're doing it or if anything makes sense. You know, it always happens. So, and I found with, I I actually think that happens with any art project, um, with writers as well or people doing theater or visual artists, painters, they always go through this with any meaningful work, I think. How has it been, you know, with your creative process as an individual and having your visions come to life? Have you always found it um, maybe difficult or, you know, how accurate is it from when you have an idea in your mind to putting it to practice and on, you know, on a synth, on an instrument and then taking it to record, then to live? How's, how accurate is the timeline and how have you learned to kind of sculpt that to your preferences? Yeah, I think I think one of the, best thing I learned early on was not to have too much of a um, finished idea in your head. You can have like, you should, you should have an idea for a starting point and some ideas, some, you know, stepping stones you want to do on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some ideas of a feeling you want to go towards, but not be too, um, have it too, you know, boxed in what you want to do so I usually yeah I think I learned that early so I've used that always give yourself the opportunity to let things happen because usually that's the best stuff not the things you thought of in the beginning yeah okay trust trust the natural flow of things would you say yeah definitely and in that way it's helped you know obviously Maybe we could never have done that if we didn't have all these amazing musicians that we trust. Because we work with these people who um, we trust 
and they trust us. I mean, they trust the process of things. Some people would come in and find it uh, difficult if you don't have an exact idea of what you wanted them to play. So, but, but because we've grown up with these people, we trust them to come in and do something, whatever they want to bring to the table. And they trust us to, you know, actually make something out of it in the end. I think that's also a really, you know, uh, important thing. Yeah, do you think it's, is it a strange balance in a way having no pressure in a pressurized environment like that, where, you know, the re- every, everybody trusts each other to make this really good result, but everybody, there's no pressure in the sense that like the confidence levels are also through the roof. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that, that blend can take you a long way, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so what has inspired you to keep creating and cre- keep going? Because you mentioned like, you know, you didn't really set out to maybe be a musician, but obviously music's been your, you know, full-time sh- gig, really. Um, so what uh, what inspired you to keep doing it and keep making mum albums and to- touring? And, you know, the music obviously never slowed down for you. Like, why? Why was your initiative and, yeah, goal to just make more records and keep playing them? Yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think there's a different, I think there are different reasons behind that i think one thing is that you know the musical ideas just keep coming you can't really can't shake them off another thing is like because we don't really we have you know you know we haven't released an album like an album album since 2013 yeah i know it's a long time yeah but that's the other that's this is the probably the biggest reason why we've kept going is that people keep coming to us with projects like different kinds of projects you know interesting things that's what that's kind of the usual thing we do now we do like music to silent films or work with an orchestra somewhere or doing film music or something this is what we do now much more than just doing these albums i think that's another thing yet too many too many interesting opportunities have come up i think that's the I think that's the one of the main things. Also, I remember when we were at some point, we thought we looked at Sonic Youth and we thought, okay, they're the only band who doesn't break up. That's why they ne- never need to reform. So we thought, whatever we do, we can just stop doing it for a while, but let's never break this up. And then we don't need to reform. But then yeah. I think Sonic Youth probably, did they break up in the end? Yeah, yeah I think, but yeah, like, I think not for like... Not for like multiple decades. No, exactly. So yeah, it's they were our. Um, I mean, they were our heroes. <laughs> yeah, amazing band. Um, so good, man. Um, yeah. So has music really become you know more than mum to you? And was it always that? Because you mentioned like you were involved in like some theatre work prior to the band. Um, and yeah, has it really just taken it this as you becoming almost like a freelance kind of guy? Aside from being, you know, the fountain, like you know, the guy and mum, have you become, yeah, established in your own sense that you could probably hand out a business card as well <laughs> rather than play a show? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. That's it. Just kind of keeps going. It's not something I've been aiming for really, but I, I still, I like right now. I have a lot of different projects. I do. I, I did my solo album a couple of years ago and I do uh, I have a project with Sinfang and Soleil called Team Dreams 
which we did. We did like a song a month. Yeah. The whole year of 2017, and we're doing that again, uh, which has, it's, it's one of these things that has the really, it has energy behind it, and it has a really, it has a mentality that wakes me up, you know, because we really have to struggle to get these songs every, it's not safe what we're doing. I think that's <laughs> also, you know, one of the things that, but still, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to, I still don't, this isn't really, I, I never really considered myself, and I still don't really consider myself a musician per se, you know, more maybe, you know, poet, some in some ways a composer, some, someone who writes and performs music, but not really a musician, and I'm still, I still, you know, this isn't, I don't have an ambition to be that. Maybe to make music, but not really to be a musician or something. I don't really know. Yeah, that's. I've been, very... so I've been trying to get back into to so that um, poetry and writing can be my main focus. So that's yeah, what okay. I've been trying to do for the last few years. Yeah. And uh, it, when you're in this, you know, when you're in the web of music, it's so hard to get out because also you need to, you know, you need to work and you need to get paid and you, you know, you need to do these projects and and yeah music takes a lot of focus does indeed mate um sure man because it's it's like you've have you almost created this fine line for yourself of you know how you want to stand in your own vision compared to like how someone like me or like a fan of mum would see you probably maybe because i it's not really that defined and i can't i can never really put my finger on it but i just Yeah, it's what we do. We've always done it in the way that we feel is right. At the same time, being a musician in like the, the music industry, the music setup, the way it is never feels right. That's the kind of the things that are like probably conflicting in this thing. That's the thing that's, you know, always there's a nuance there. You know, something, you know, something that, and that, I mean, I mean that creates energy as well. I think. Yeah. What's been um, What's been your biggest problem with the industry then in your time with with the band? Um, and obviously, you might have a different answer considering like the challenges you face coming from a country not connected to the continent. Um, but yeah, what's been your constant issue with the industry, and what do you think really needs to change then and now? And how have you seen it? And and how has you know some problems disappeared and came about? Yeah, I think. I mean. <laughs> The whole uh, uh, the whole story of Moon. I mean, the, the the twenty something years that we've been doing it has been. It's been the music industry has just been in flux the whole time, and it's you know it hasn't found its way yet. We come into the when we come in, when we do the when we sign with uh, Fat Cat uh, and the record label that owned them at the time, we came into a music industry like it had been for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. You know, you would sign to a label, you'd be exclusively signed to them. They would sell your physical albums. And that wasn't a good system, I think. You know, I mean, it was really, it wasn't very free for musicians. And then, you know, the whole, uh, everything changed with, you know, the, the downloading of music. I think that's when people stopped buying records. But also, 
that kind of put everyone in the industry in such a difficult place that when streaming started being a thing, uh, musicians and the labels that were still running, they weren't in any position to do any, you know, to ask for, <laughs> I mean, to ask to get paid for what they do. So that's the problem right now is that the, the whole streaming industry is, it's built out of a crisis. It comes from a crisis and it's never really been corrected. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love technically how streaming works. And in some ways, like with film and TV, it's uh, been really helpful with financing more art, more, you know, better films, better TV. But in music, it's doing pretty much the opposite thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that's my, you know, and but, you know, you can't blame anyone, obviously. It's just a thing that we need to work out how we do this now. Like, what can we do? And you can really see it at a time like now during the this COVID thing because the everything had just gone from being so you would you would sell albums and then you would lose money on tours, you know, to promote the album, yeah. and then it it turned completely on its head. The only income you have now is the touring, and you don't get anything for the streams. So when COVID happened, it just like it was just like somebody came and, you know, cut the whole income stream from the from the whole industry. So it's really, it's, you know, it's a diff difficult thing to get out of. And it will be really hard to get out of because, you know, touring will take half a year, a year to get back on track after all this is done. It's going to be really hard to get things back up and running. Mm. There's yeah. so much planning and so much work be behind everything. I think maybe people don't completely realize. We had this. We had our U.S. tour canceled just a week before, or two weeks before it was supposed to happen. And that, you know, we're still, we're still just, you know, digging through that, trying to save the things we can save from that. And it was really, that was really hard. That's a shame, man. Yeah, I can imagine. Um... But the, yeah, man, I mean, at the same time, there's so many opportunities to do different things. So I think, you know, you just need to be open to yeah. you know, new possibilities that are opening up, work with them, try them out. And that's what we, we've always done. Yes, I can. Yeah, definitely, man. 100%. You can see it in the music. You can tell it mm -hmm. when you just speak. 100%. Open-mindedness will get you somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think there's no, there's no, nothing to be gotten from, you know, banging your head against the wall in this this situation obviously not just you, we can we can all work together and i think listeners need to do this as well we need to work together to get everything get to get music into a place where we can all enjoy it yeah man that's uh yeah that's a really nice thing to say i really appreciate those words man really cool really cool statement to make thank you so much for your time it was a, a, a an honor to speak to you man so so nice to chat yeah, it's fun. It's lovely. I enjoyed it. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Why isn't Poison Ivy on Spotify either? I wanted to ask you this. It's not on there. Um, the thing is, like the three albums that uh, the fat three Fat Cat albums. Yeah. The rights for them are owned by a Belgian, like semi-major label called Piaz, and they hate us 
and we hate <laughs> them and I really don't put that on the show though <laughs> for legal reasons <laughs> yeah um it's really difficult we have a really difficult situation right okay cool man yeah because because we don't own them that's the other thing we get asked we get asked why we don't re-release finally we're known and summer make good on vinyl the thing is we we don't own the rights to them and it's too complicated and it's too it's too hard because this other record label owns the rights to them and we have to wait until that you know period is finished i mean we made a lot of mistakes in the music industry and this yeah, was one of them, you know, all this exclusiveness and all these deals, with, which don't really happen anymore, I think. Record labels don't own bands anymore. No, they don't, no. no. They used to, and that's one of the good things, I think, that, that has happened out of this whole thing. Yeah. Know? Well, okay, man. Well, that's a shame. It's just music, you know. It's a shame these people get so precious about it all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they just have a complete... I mean, they have the opposite way of thinking to us. Just They don't care about anything music the dollar, yeah, the the music yeah it's just about numbers not really you know it's it's all it's all about owning these big catalogs of music and mm. seeing these like bits you know fractions of cents pour in every millisecond and combining them into a big amount that's what these companies do you know yeah they're disgusting man yes, oh. yeah i don't understand it they're horrible yeah. people yeah what a shame what a shame man how's the covid situation in Iceland doing um is I mean, it i mean we're good there's we haven't had a single i mean is, what is that they said a week now since the last since somebody uh was how you say was diagnosed with it you know yeah so we don't it's not it's not around but i mean it's just it's more an economic problem here i guess because the tourist industry which is by far the biggest industry here. It just collapsed. So yeah, God, what a shame! What a shame. So like, I, I guess we're lucky with the you know, there's no lockdown or anything. You yeah. can't do um, big shows. You can do small shows and you can go to the gym or the theater now. But you know, it's you know, it's still not the same. It's not the same until everything opens up again. And also, it's so, so important that you know, because it's it doesn't matter if if we're okay in Iceland, it, we need everyone to get, yeah. get there. You know? For sure, man. Things won't yeah. be the same until everyone is, mm. everyone's doing good. Equal treatment, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I really hope, you know, these vaccines start speeding up and just, yeah, things get back to normal. Same, man. Well, yeah, wishing you positive thoughts and safety and, yeah, all the best. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Be nice to speak again one day, mate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, keep in touch, man. Keep looking after yourself and enjoy the rest. Enjoy your weekend, enjoy your evening, and all the best. Thanks, man.